Today in Civil War Talk Radio, we're talking with Gary Gallagher, the University of Virginia, author of more than 30 books on the Civil War. When we return, we'll put Professor Gallagher in the Civil War time machine. Join us on Civil War Talk Radio. Do you like to save money? Let me tell you about a website, Target Barter. Instead of buying things for cash, you trade things you have for things you want. It's as close as you can come to getting something for free. Target Barter has dozens of categories, thousands of things. Jewelry, beauty products, perfume, electronics, computers, and much more. Why pay cash for something you want when you can probably find it on Target Barter? But it's not buying. It's Target Barter trading. List things you have to trade and earn Target dollars. Use your Target dollars to trade for things you want. It's easy. It's fun. And it's not expensive. Before my family spends cash on anything, we check Target Barter. Target Barter is not an auction. You don't bid against anybody. You see it. You like it. You click on it. You buy it. But not for cash. For Target Barter trade dollars. Go to the website. They walk you through the entire process. So what are you waiting for? It's free to join. TargetBarter.com gets the things you want without spending cash. That's TargetBarter.com. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dolnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that will encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers the night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next Next auction. World Talk Radio. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, today speaking with Gary Gallagher of the University of Virginia. Gary, we were talking in our previous segment about the interpretation of the Civil War today, how much, uh, how, how the current battlefield interpretation is changing from a strictly military to a more uh, social, political, economic uh, slant, and how that's engendering some resistance. And you mentioned a few times in in our talk how the academy is resistant to military history, and, and those of us who study it uh, professionally often run into some, uh, uh, well, I'd say, resistance to to the topic as a whole. Do you see that as uh, a continuing trend? I do, and I think it's a real problem. I think it is is a long-standing problem that uh, typically academics have approached the war, if they have approached it at all, and many 
just ignore the war. They'll teach up to it and then teach from Reconstruction on. The Civil War just gets lost. Uh, I think many have avoided it because it's often dismissed as, as nothing but the story of battles and generals and what general's good, what general's bad. It's, it's almost antiquarian uh, to many academics. I think that is uh, a very flawed way to look at it, but I think that it's been in place in the academy with the result that uh, when academics do write about the war, they tend to write about anything but military history. They'll write about, uh, they'll approach it socially or culturally or in, uh, in past years talk about politics or economics or diplomacy. Uh, things that aren't much written about these days by academics, but but not about military affairs. Whereas on the on the other side, there's a great divide between the academic history written about the war and the more popular uh, history written about the war by talented non-academics. And there have always been many in the field of Civil War history, whether it's Bruce Catton or Clifford Dowdy, or you, know, you can come on down to right now. They're almost solely interested in military history, especially in. Uh, quite traditional military history, campaign and battle history, military biography, and so forth, uh, ignoring all the things that academics are interested in. So I think both sides are complicit in this creation of an enormous literature that often doesn't examine the myriad ties between the home front and the battlefield. Neither one of those literatures really gets you at a real understanding of the war. Now, I think some people try to bridge that gap, but I don't think nearly enough do. And I understand you're working on something in that vein. Is that correct? Well, I've been, in one way or another, been trying to bridge that gap for a long time. Uh, I, both in the series of books I edit at, at Chapel Hill, the overall series is called Civil War America, but we have included military titles, all kinds of non-military titles, and a number of titles that try to deal with both. Uh, I edit another series there called Military Campaigns of the Civil War that is made up of essays from leading scholars that takes one campaign at a time and tries to show uh, the many dimensions, the, pure, the, the strategy, tactics, but impact on the home front and so forth. Uh, I'm very much interested in that, uh, in almost all the work that I've done. And there are others as well. I mean, I'm not trying to pretend I'm the only one. But then Jim McPherson does a, a very uh, good job of that as well. But I don't think... Most people are interested in that, either from the academic side or the non-academic side. And, and both Jim and I have gotten a good deal of, uh, of criticism uh, for that. One of my favorite uh, Amazon.com responses to one of these military campaigns of the Civil War volumes was the headline is, Gallagher sells out again. And from this person's uh, perspective, a person who didn't uh, sign his or her name to it, I sold out because it's not, old, it's not just military. I there are essays on the home front and so forth. That very much vexed this person. So, so they're looking for just the military. They're looking for just the military. Now, my academic uh, pals would often say there's too much military. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting divide between right. those two worlds. I'll share a, a, an anecdote I mentioned in a uh, I participated in a panel for an upcoming issue of North and South. And I mentioned uh, someone I know who applied not too long ago for a job advertised as teaching Civil War history at a major state university. And uh, the person didn't get the job, and the the word came back that that person should not does not get the job teaching Civil War history because the person's work was too much Civil War. Right. What and could be worse? What could be worse? <laughs> someone who studies the actual Civil War rather than the, the surrounding... 
Yes. Uh, no, that's right. Well, I, I was much amused, and I'm still amused, and I read this to my graduate students uh, in, in seminars and so forth. The C. Van Woodward's preface or introduction or whatever it is to Jim McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, which is in the Oxford history of the United States or American people or whatever, in, in effect has to explain why McPherson spent a lot of time on battles and generals in this book. He says, after all, it's a war. It's a giant war. Uh, so that's why, I mean, it's just so, it, it's so interesting. Uh, to most lay readers, that would seem to be so crashingly obvious that you should talk about military affairs if you're talking about a gigantic war that you shouldn't have to explain it. And, and yet, and yet, this does come all the time. This panel I, I mentioned uh, asked a bunch of people to write about ten successes of the Civil War, and some people wrote only about military events. Some people wrote <laughs> mostly about uh, other. I, my list was split about half and half. Right. And, and there was criticism from both sides. Some people saying, "Look, this is uh, in, in the give and take." Some of the panelists said, "Well, it's a war." I wrote about military events, and others said. You're all wrong. There's too much military here. Uh, my view yep. was it is a war. There ought to be something military about it. But, but as you say, you get people from the academic side who, who do not want any military events in, intruding on the discussion. Yes, yes. Very, That's very, right. Now, I mean, my colleague at, at uh, Virginia here, Michael Holt, who is a Civil War-era historian, he's a political historian, uh, he taught the Civil War course here before I came, and if I'm gone, he teaches it. We've we've kidded each other about this. When he teaches the Civil War, there's virtually not a musket fired uh, in the entire semester. And, I mean, we can just, uh, we have very different conceptions uh, <clears throat> of, of what it means to teach this class. And, and yet, I imagine the students come away knowing something about the Whig Party when they're done. They do. They do. <laughs> but the uh, which people ought to know. I'm not. I don't mean to say that facetiously. Of course they should. It's, it's, uh... But it's pretty hard to uh, really understand the Civil War if you don't understand that there were armies roaming around the countryside uh, for four years. Now, when you teach your students, you you taught at Penn State. Now you're teaching in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Do you notice a different reaction between the two student bodies? You know, I, I've taught the, my Civil War course at three places, at the University of Texas and at Penn State and here at UVA. And I find more similarities among the students than I do differences. And part of that is because of something we talked about earlier. That is the pervasiveness of lost cause interpretations of the war. Most of my students in all three places uh, would argue before they finished the course that Robert E. Lee was a better general than Grant, for example. Well, there's no way to come to that conclusion, I think, unless you are buying the lost cause argument, which uh, not only elevated Lee but uh, deprecated Grant. I, there's a little bit more of the lost cause influence apparent uh, at Virginia than there was at Penn State, but not a lot more, and, and much of it is in the form of a student will come up and say, well, you're saying that slavery is important here, but my uncle or my father or someone says <laughs> that it was about state rights, that kind of thing. And it's hard to argue with the authority figure. That's right. Which authority figure trumps the other? <laughs> That's right. Well, no, I said during the... But, the, I, mean, I, grew, yeah. I mean, I grew up that way. I have a vivid... Because the first books I read, I didn't know they were Lost Cause books, but I read Lee's Lieutenants. Uh, when I was 10 and 11, and I would, and then I bought other titles that he mentioned in his books, and I think Freeman's still worth reading. But I read 
a lot of books by Confederate staff officers and Confederate memoirs and so forth when I was a, a boy. And so I had, uh, growing up in Colorado with no ties to the Civil War and certainly no Southern ties, I had a sort of lost cause take on the war. I remember once my grandmother was visiting from California and I had my nose in a Civil War book and she said, oh, that was such a sad war, but at least it was worth it because of emancipation and I and I told her I'm sure very condescendingly for 11 or 12 year old whatever I was that the war wasn't about slavery it was it was about state rights and it's I was surprised that she didn't know that I mean well, it's so there in Colorado I got it well you have to get them young if you want to inculcate <laughs> the, the the correct interpretation apparently let I promise the listeners I would ask you this question which I ask uh, many guests if you could Go back to the Civil War for an hour uh, in in safety and return to the present. <laughs> Who would you like to meet? Oh, you know, I used to think about that a lot. As a, I mean, the, I have my short list. I would, of course, want to meet Lincoln, uh, and I would want to meet Lee, or at least see them and hear them. I'd like to hear what their voices were like. I'd like to, uh, and I would like to see and hear Grant and Sherman's voice as well. Uh, I'm thinking in uh, in broad military and political terms here, but I also would want to meet a, a, a Confederate named Porter Alexander, whose memoir I edited, and who is just, I think, one of the most uh, intelligent and thoughtful and analytical participants in the war who ever wrote about it. I would like to meet him and just chat with him as well. You know, that book, um, when, when Louis Bateman at the... UNC Press first approached me uh, about my work in the Army of the Ohio. Uh-huh. He sent me a copy of that as an example of the work UNC Press did, and it's just a magnificent book. Uh, oh, oh it is. It's it, it's not because of what I did to it. It's just it, I think it's the best reminiscence by any soldier north or south. I think it's better than Grant's. I think it's better than Sherman's. It's it has a. It's just an amazing book. It's an amazing it, book. The title for for the listeners is Fighting for the Confederacy. If you want to look that up, uh, and, and I highly recommend it, uh, a wonderful key, book. One of the keys is that he wrote it for his children with no intention of publishing it. So it's a much more blunt, uh, unself-edited take on the war. He says things in there uh, that he never would have said if he had intended to publish it. And he did publish a famous book later, and he took most of that kind of material out of this one before he published his other one. Well, this is this is a version to read. Then this is the one that really has. I think it is what Alexander thought, and, and highly recommend it. Well, he would be somebody interesting to meet, certainly. Now, Alexander is in the Army of Northern Virginia, right? And much of your work is on the Army of Northern Virginia. It is. Mm-hmm. But there are many Civil War historians today who would argue that this this constant back and forth over the miles between Washington and Richmond is ultimately indecisive, and the war really is decided in the West. Some people who work on the Army of the Ohio might even argue Indeed, that. Indeed. If, if there were such people, <laughs> they would come to that brilliant conclusion. Uh, what do you think of it? Well, I think that uh, – you know what I think. I think the East was more important to people at the time, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, many modern historians argue the war – that you have this standoff in the East, and then you have the war won in the West by, by Union military forces that – I mean, the Western Theater starts in Kentucky and ends up at Durham Station, North Carolina. It's a movable feast. I I can't disagree with that, but I think most people, most people lived in the East then at the time. I think they looked toward the Eastern Theater where the capitals were and where the most famous 
armies were, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia. And for Confederates, they looked to the east because it's the only place where there was any good news coming to them from the battlefield. There's no question but that London and Paris looked to the east. They, they seem not to be able to see beyond the Appalachian Mountains. I mean, they, they gauged who was winning the war by what was happening in the east. So I think that in terms of, of, of morale and perception, the East was more important at the time. I may be wrong about it, but that's my perception. Uh, in a strictly military sense, where is the war really changing as a result of what armies are doing? The West is clearly more important. Well, certainly the media, uh, then as now, focuses on events in the East. They do, because most of the big newspapers, they were in Philadelphia and New York and Boston and Baltimore and Washington. I mean, they were in the biggest cities. Uh, they, the big cities weren't in the West with a few exceptions. So so that's what people read, that, that's what they, they take away. And yet the uh, whether these events are really decisive is much harder to argue. You, you pointed out yourself in your research on the, the Confederate Army after Gettysburg that they don't regard this as a decisive battle. I don't think they do. No, I don't. I think Gettysburg is, I think we misread Gettysburg abysmally now. We, and again, Jerry, I think that is the lost cause at work, because for the lost cause writers, Gettysburg achieved this enormous importance after the war, fighting and refighting it endlessly, uh, in one sense to get Lee off the hook, and in another sense, although they're usual, they had really two explanations for why the Confederacy lost. It never could have won, the North had too much of everything, or Lee was undone at Gettysburg. Now, those are irreconcilable, it can't be both, but they argued both. But they poured out uh, argument about Gettysburg, and I think Gettysburg became more and more important as they argued about it after the war. Certainly no one in the summer of 1864 on either side, if you had said, well, there's a lot of fighting still going on, but as we know, Gettysburg or Gettysburg and Vicksburg really, really decided the war last summer, they, they would have looked like you, at you like you were out of your mind. There was, there was much yet to be decided at that yes, point. Yes, there was. Well, I, I wish there was much time left for us to talk, but unfortunately... Is our hour gone already? Our hour has gone. I, we could do this wow. for another hour easily, I know. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you in Gettysburg. I remind our listeners, uh, come to Gettysburg uh, for the Fort and Ball Lecture in November, November 19, 2005, and uh, look at the many works of our guest today, Gary Gallagher. Gary, thanks so much for joining me today. I enjoyed it very much. This is Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. For they were strongly fortified with batteries on the riverside. Our generals ruled the plains and fight.